I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, go to our webpage, that's IThinkThereforeIFan.com, all one word, click on the link that says Donate, and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. Spoiler warning time. In this episode, we discuss The Princess Bride, Bird Box, Bandersnatch, Ozark, Mary Poppins Returns, Mary Poppins, A Quiet Place, and Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Welcome, everybody. This week's episode, we're talking about The Princess Bride. That's right. Uh, we have three interviews, one from Laura Guidry-Grimes and Jamie Watson, who are going to talk to us about the rationality of the various characters in The Princess Bride. And they're, they, they make an interesting argument that we need to reserve some room for rationality in between weighing evidence on the one hand, and wishful thinking on the other. So yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a surprising result that I think um, is well argued for on their folks part. Folks are going to enjoy that. Uh, and then Jerry Piven were, is going to talk about his contribution to the collection. His paper's called The Shrieking Evils, which is a, a contribution, a name I like a lot for a contribution. Um, and he's going to talk about the various villains in The Princess Bride, and he's going to make the, the controversial point that even Wesley himself uh, counts, maybe not as a villain, but as, as evil in some way. Yeah, uh, he's not all that he seems. And Don Fallis uh, is, isn't going to disagree uh, dramatically with, with Piven um, insofar as he points out that plenty of the characters in The Princess Bride are frequently engaging in deception. Uh, Wesley, not excluded. Mm-hmm. So... Right, and you, a moment ago you mentioned the collection. We should say that that's from our our collection oh, of essays, right. "The Princess Bride and Philosophy" on Open Court Books, um, available at booksellers everywhere on Amazon.com. <laughs> so we did this. It's been a, a couple of years, right? Yeah, 2016. Um, 2016. So this is one of our favorite collections, and because "The Princess Bride" is just such a great book, such a great movie, uh, I would have said. For many years, I would have said the, the Princess Bride was my favorite film, um, all the way up through my early twenties. Yeah, yeah, it's it's certainly one of my um, very favorites. So, on to the interviews. Sure. Our first interview is with Jerry S. Piven. Jerry teaches in the philosophy department at Rutgers University, and is steeped in evil, having two hippotamic cats, a rabidly Reagan-loving relative and a wife who shrieked, Dear God, what is that thing on their wedding night? He actually studied the Capo Ferro and Agrippa fencing styles once upon a time, but now spends his days in his own zoo of evil, writing about inconceivable subjects and appeasing his true beloved. Hi, Jerry. How are you today? 
Oh, well, thanks. How are both of you? Good. Doing good. well. Thanks yeah. for speaking with us. Yeah, we appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. All right. Well, then we'll just get started. So your paper for our collection is called The Shrieking Evils. I liked that title a lot. And it's a, an assessment of the various villains we find in The Princess Bride. So we'll start with an assessment of Prince Humperdinck, who is undeniably evil. What can you tell us about the kind of evil he exhibits? And is this type of evil reserved for fiction, or do we also see it in the real world? Well, we find all sorts of villains in the real world who put on masks of nobility or patriotism or righteousness. And um, some, of course, who just repeat grotesque lies at <laughs> Fornicum Nauseam. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, many of them are engaged in the fantasy of some kind of sacred mission or doing some kind of higher good. And we find that so many of them seem to be abject narcissists desperate for attention and glory but then they become really sadistic when spurned so um they seem to manifest some kind of bloated grandiosity that hides the sniveling coward underneath like uh humperdinck does right um mm -hmm. who um really is this kind of machiavellian mendacious villain and so many of these types seem to crave adulation and then leave chaos and death in their wake but they then pity themselves as victims and say, poor me, when left to their own resorts. So, um, yeah, there is some kind of weird uh, uh, parallel with actual human beings in the world who do this kind of thing and um, who would strut around um, but sneak out of combat because of various kinds of injuries but inflict themselves mm -hmm. on the world most <laughs> sanctimoniously. So, yeah, there are... Uh, uncanny parallels, I think. I really hate bone spurs. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what kind of, uh, what kind of motivations do you think these people have, people who exhibit this kind of evil? Well, uh, one doesn't want to, to stereotype them as, as, as amusing as it is in a novel. Um, but um, part of the problem is that, is that uh, evil can be incredibly complex and that for many, uh, there is this kind of, um, fantasy of doing something in a higher cause, whether, again, okay. that's uh, uh, for a kingdom or country or religion or what have you, or for making uh, something better again and, and bringing us back to a golden age of prosperity and so forth. Um, there are all sorts of motivations, and that's what makes it so important to really tease this stuff out. All right. In your chapter, you also talk about a kind of evil that's sort of cold and dispassionate. Uh, oh, what, yes, yeah. What kinds of examples do you see of this in The Princess Bride and then maybe in the real world also? Okay, well, we have Count Rugen, who's yeah. cold and dispassionate. And <laughs> what makes him so hilarious and sinister is that he lacks any kind of affect and is willing to suck people's life away with no remorse for posterity and so forth. And sure, there are people in the real world who seem cold and calculating. And some of these folks are um, the ones who should really send chills down our spines. I've spoken to members of international military units and so forth uh and here i'm not giving away any military secrets by the way but they they have dispassionately talked about the necessity of killing civilians or insurgents who were in their way not that it was um tragic to kill civilians uh, not that it was a necessity that they loathed but they speak with cold contempt for liberal bleeding par uh, hearts who see a problem with shooting through innocent women or children they wow. very coldly say, no, we have to kill these people. And there is no emotion about it, uh, except maybe a kind of seething contempt underneath. And um, one, of course, could look to the recent film Vice to get a mm. picture of a 
cold, ostensibly emotionless, ruthless person willing to liquidate anybody who poses some kind of threat or anyone deems some kind of obstacle. So there are people willing to murder, uh, massacre en masse, raise nations to the ground in some cold scheme to rid the world of enemies or make a profit, um, usually accompanied by some chillingly sanctimonious, though possibly delusional moral justification about how this protects human beings and is really done for us. And so, yeah, I mean, these people really exist and it is kind of scary. Yeah. yeah. Maybe this will lighten it up a little, <laughs> but okay. what do you have to say about Vizzini? Uh, he's supposed to be a villain, but he maintains an attitude of moral righteousness. Yeah, well, Vizzini is, is clearly the most hilarious uh, in the film because Wally Shawn plays him with such expert exasperation. Um, <laughs> But again, even without the exaggerated speech and such, we have people who deliberately start wars and tell lies and manipulate behind the scenes who are ready to beget abject slaughter. Um, and somehow they describe this in terms of necessity and moral sanctimony as if there were, in Vizzini's words, something noble or proud about it. And history is replete with people who are ready to slice uh, others into bloody quivering sashimi in the name of some absurdly <laughs> sacred or noble cause or even to eliminate evil. What's yeah. chilling is how um, all sorts of desperate murderers and pathological narcissists can really imagine themselves as saviors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, of course, Vizzini is not the only evil uh, person uh, in the film, which is why I, I wrote about uh, everybody, including Inigo and Fezzik, is potentially being evil. Great. Can you tell us about them? Because they're also protagonists in a yeah, way. Yeah, they, so... they, they come off as very lovable mm -hmm. um, oh, yet. And, and they are adorable, but that's the problem. Inigo has been so wounded in childhood that his life is one longitudinal obsession with vengeance. And along the way, he'll be hired and manipulated to abduct and murder uh, innocent princesses or whomever. He's the potential right. contract killer or terrorist recruit who can be conscripted and manipulated to do all sorts of hard things with no compunction and remorse. And as cuddly as Fezzik is, he too can be hired to abduct and murder without guilt or awareness of the utter immorality of what he's doing. Um, in the book, they both uh, become famously felonious as part of Vizzini's Sicilian crowd. Right. Quote, nothing was beyond or beneath them. Inigo even fantasizes about becoming the next Dread Pirate Roberts. The story makes both of them seem like good people deep down, but look what they're willing to do. Right, yeah. Yeah, interesting how they, they soften the blow with their, their like you say, kind of um, lovable personalities. Mm -hmm. um, the, the move to him being the next Dread Pirate Roberts is also softened by the fact that Wesley, another protagonist, held that position. But you're, you're right, um, as Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, unspeakable things were done. And that so. sort of leads us into the next question. Oh, yeah, um, go ahead, Rachel. Which, uh, so Wesley is the ma main male protagonist of the story, um, but he's not a pure protagonist. So we, you no. also identify some evil we can find in Wesley. Oh, he, he's definitely not pure. And even as, as you say in your own article to the pain, Dr. Rachel, sadism abounds in the princess bride. And, um, quote, our storybook hero par excellence is able to out-sadist even the most committed sadists. I love that line. And um, <laughs> here's, here's what's so eerie. Wesley is this beautiful farm boy with beautiful blue eyes uh, like the sea before a storm. And he's driven by true love. But <laughs> after being captured, 
he spends years trying to learn from the Dread Pirate Roberts, so he has to engage in all these pillity piratey things along the way, and he's not just forced to do it, right? Especially since he eventually becomes the new Dread Pirate Roberts, and he has the freedom to do whatever he wants at that point. And he admits to Buttercup how much he liked being a pirate. Mm. So as I wrote in my chapter, for true love, Wesley pretty much pirated, plundered, delayed, and filleted whomever he wanted to, and he's hardly as pure as the driven snow. And that's another sinister thing. Yet another hero in some noble quest to avenge evil or attain true love, but then disembowels all sorts of hapless people along the way because um, that beatific noble quest spurs them on. So what will people do in the name of uh, their sacred, more beatific quests? History is a nightmare, (laughs) as Joyce wrote, largely because of the atrocities people are willing to commit in the name of some divine cause, as though we're all justified in the name of that sublime. So what I eventually concluded in my chapter was um, uh, that we really need to take a look at ourselves and our propensities to ignore the swathes of slaughter we inflict in the name of quests we deem pure, passionate, or pious. So um, true love may embrace the vilest evil. And furthermore, what does that say about us if we're willing to adore such villains, even though we know they've deliberately engaged in acts of abduction, privacy, I'm sorry, piracy and murder and so forth? Um, we can blow our way to the delirious mm-hmm. fantasy that we're really good and then go on killing another like uh, civilized people as God intended. Or we could um, reflect a little further as I uh, as I implored the um, readers of the chapter to do. Uh, that's a great admonition. Yes. Um, All right. Well, that's, that's wonderful. Thanks a lot, Jerry. Yeah. Thanks so much oh, for talking like, to us. Oh, sure. I could go on for uh, hours if you need. <laughs> <laughs> Our second guests are Laura Guidry Grimes and Jamie Watson. Laura Guidry Grimes, PhD, and Jamie Watson, PhD, are assistant professors of medical humanities and bioethics at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, and they are clinical ethicists at UAMS and Arkansas Children's Hospital. Dr. Watson also works as a plain language writer for the Center for Health Literacy. Hi, Laura. Hi, Jamie. Hi there. Hey. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, we, we appreciate you, you giving us, us your time. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having us. Rach, do you want to dive right in? Sure. So uh, I'll, I'll start with a question that I think these folks have an interesting take on. So when Wesley returns from his five-year intrigue with the Dread Pirate Roberts, he's upset with Buttercup for failing to have waited for him. Is his outrage rational or is it merely jealousy? Well, we think that it's... Uh probably irrational um wesley seems to have this overly romantic notion of love even for many fairy tales it's, it's hard to imagine being rationally angry with someone uh, who has as much evidence as buttercup does that wesley just isn't coming back mm-hmm. but i would also say that i'm not sure it's a case of simple jealousy it seems that wesley actually expects a certain level of irrationality Uh, with Buttercup and others based in this love conquers all ethos of his. All right. In your chapter, you discuss wishful thinking and the challenges it poses for arriving at true beliefs. Can you tell us a little bit about wishful thinking and uh, the ways in which characters in Princess Bride might engage in wishful thinking in a problematic way? 
Sure. So we think, well, I mean, the way that we define wishful thinking in our chapter, it's not merely wishing something to be true. It's more than that. It's actually using your wish that something is true as reason to believe it is true. And this involves actively discounting evidence that's contrary to that wish. So it can actually be um, very difficult to approximate true belief when you're engaged in wishful thinking. Yeah, and some of the characters we see uh, exhibiting this, uh, you know, Vizzini is one of these that's, um, he has these interesting moments where, you know, he is just so confident that uh, his plan is going to succeed. He's so confident in his own intellectual abilities that, it, that it's hard to interpret that any other way as just his, uh, his, his belief that he is so smart is just evidence that he is that smart. And, <laughs> and, and we see this in his argument with, uh, with uh, the man in black. And, and we also see moments of this with Wesley coming back to his, you know, his interesting moments where uh, he has this love conquers all attitude. And in some cases, this seems to uh, emerge uh, in, in ways that, that that make him look just just downright committed to wishful thinking in some cases. Going back to Vizzini just quickly, would you also say that it's true that that his belief that he's so smart um, constitutes for him a kind of evidence that he must be right? sort of for any particular target proposition um, that he will win the battle of wits or they, you know, they will ultimately prevail and so forth. I think so. I think that uh, it, it's become this uh, vicious cycle for him that uh, he just, he can't be wrong. He's, uh, he, he's such a, um, he's so clever and he's so, um, you know, thoughtful and, you know, he just believes that he's, he's, um, engaged in these these activities that just aren't going to fail. And I think that uh, over time, uh, he sort of bought his own line in this. Well, and this is part of the danger of wishful thinking, right, is that even if um, at some point the individual is aware that they're actively discounting evidence in favor of what they prefer to believe, uh, that over time it might not even register as discounting of evidence, right? Mm -hmm. The whole thing about what counts as evidence gets so convoluted over time that you might think that, um, you know, you are engaged in all the intellectual rigor that you're supposed to, that you are evidence responsive. But the problem is that the wishful thinking has completely taken over mm -hmm. um, how someone thinks through their beliefs and what they count as evidence for it. Okay, so it seems as if this, this tendency to engage in wishful thinking is contrary to rationality in some way. Can you say a little bit about what typical accounts of rationality require? Sure. So rationality is talked about a couple of different ways uh, in the literature. It's sort of talked about as rationality and behavior, what we call practical rationality, and we can talk about rational belief. And there are a variety of different theories of what counts as rational uh, behavior or rational belief. And there's plenty of overlap between the two. But when we're talking about rational belief, um, we're often talking about what it's reasonable to believe in light of the evidence. And in most cases, that evidence involves some sort of uncertainty. Uh, you know, we don't quite know the whole, all of the information, all the pictures. So we're trying to figure out what it's rational to believe. And so uh, rational belief can be uh, arrived at for a number of different strategies. And some people approach it with frequentist models or Bayesian models and uh, a variety of different um, 
types of rationality, whether it's substantive, having to do with the content of your belief, or procedural rationality, having to do with the strategies for acquiring belief. But the point to all of these is that rationality is aimed at truth. Your belief is rational if it's acquiring more true beliefs, or if it's acquiring beliefs in a way that is more likely for the belief to be true. And I think that's what's um, you know, distinctive and characteristic of these classical approaches to rationality. Great. Nice. So in your, in your chapter, you argue that there's a space for rationality between following the evidence and wishful thinking. So could you talk to us about what you mean, meant by that? Yeah, that's right. I think that in between wishful thinking and rationality, as it's classically conceived, uh, there, are, there are spaces for other types of, of virtues, intellectual virtues like hopefulness. We think uh, when, when engaged in the right way, hopefulness occupies this interesting space outside of what's classically thought of as rational belief, but it doesn't fall into the, the vice of wishful thinking. And we think that it does that in a way that takes evidence seriously. Unlike wishful thinking, it doesn't discount or dismiss or demote evidence, but hopefulness acknowledges evidence, it takes it seriously, but it also incorporates things that we value into our belief forming process. It says that, that there's something besides truth um, that we still value about belief. And, and the question is, how do we get there in a way that's virtuous? What is it to be hopeful? How do we get these strategies that won't let us fall into wishful thinking, but that aren't solely aimed at truth? Uh, yeah, I mean, just to uh, add on to that, um, Adrian Martin is this great philosopher of hope and hopefulness, and she describes hope as endorsed desire uh, with uncertainty. Hmm. And so you can think of someone who has hopeful belief as someone who is weighing the evidence and accepting or considering uncertainty in light of what the uh, what meaning the belief has to them as a person. And so that becomes part of the formulation. You know, if you have a very strict truth-oriented account of rationality, it's not going to matter what the belief matters to you, what, how it impacts you as a person. Um, but we do think that there's a huge uh, area to talk about rational belief that does take that into account. So, um, like, you know, what meaning the belief has to you as a person in terms of what do you hope for? And you avoid falling into wishful thinking by still considering the evidence, not losing sight of what the evidence can tell you and where the evidence is silent. Great. So do you, do you see this, do you see evidence of this kind of view in, in the princess bride? Yes, absolutely. We, uh, we think that there are moments where the, the weight of, of what's at stake uh, is significant in helping them the characters make decisions and so the fire swamp is an example we come back to in, in a number of cases you know the the, the fire swamp is about as uh, you have about as good of evidence as you could have that you're not going to survive this fire swamp even <laughs> wesley says uh, you know you're, you're only saying we're not going to survive because no one ever has <laughs> right right, right. <laughs> you know seems like pretty good evidence that you're not going to survive um, but then when you start thinking about, well, what's the alternative to believing that you're going to survive? If you stop believing that you're going to survive, then you're going to give up and you're very likely going to die. If you turn back and go into the hands of, of, 
um, Prince Humperdinck, you're very likely going to die or very likely going to have bad consequences. And so you start thinking, well, the value of believing that you're going to survive, even if the evidence is against you, seems to be uh, fairly rational in this case. And there are other less controversial examples. You know, someone starting a race, a, a foot race, you know, is going to run a, a half marathon. They, they, they don't start out thinking, well, I'm not going to win. You know, the idea is you believe you're going to win, even if you know evidence-based that you're not going to be likely not going to be number one or number two. The probabilities are just against you. But you don't start a race believing you're going to lose. Right. Uh, and in fact, believing you're going to win can have pretty significant, um, can go a long way toward helping you do better than you otherwise would. So I think you provided a really good case of this in your chapter pertaining to uh, the medical domain. Can you talk about that a little? Sure. I mean, medicine is full of uncertainty, uh, where experts don't agree, where they uh, can't possibly know <laughs> with full certainty uh, what will or will not happen, what will be efficacious, what won't. Uh, so in the face of all this uncertainty in medicine, it can be completely rational to turn to hopeful beliefs. Um, and hopeful beliefs would involve believing what is the most desired outcome actually will occur given the state of the evidence. And there are actually some studies that show that um, patients who are hopeful tend to do better than those who are not hopeful. Um, and we, we can speculate on a lot of reasons why that might be. Um, but hopefulness, I, I think, is a really important virtue in medicine, not just among patients and their families, but other caregivers and healthcare professionals as well. You want your doctor to be hopeful for you. And so not only is it important in terms of outcome, but we would contend that it's also important for the therapeutic relationship. When you're going through something uh, scary that's going to impact possibly how long you live or how good that life is, you want to be surrounded by people who are hopeful, who are rooting for you in a lot of senses, but including in the sense of believing that the best thing will happen for you. And then hopefully also doing what they can to bring about uh, the best possible outcome. But even when everything is uncertain, you want to uh, believe what is uh, going to be the best outcome for yourself and hope it for others as well. Right. And um, yeah, so this is something that we support uh, in medicine is hopefulness without falling into wishful thinking. Great. So finally, I just want to ask you, um, how do you think that this practice of balancing evidence and hopefulness contributes to the pursuit of the good life as you see it? Yeah, that's a great question. So what we often find and is when we interact with people is, you know, people, it's easy to err on one side or another when it comes to evidence with respect to any particular question or belief. And so on, you know, some people err very, very strongly on the side of um, of, of evidence, whether it's scientific evidence or anecdotal evidence, they, they want to, to know that there's very strong evidence. And, and some other people in other situations, they, they sort of have a tendency to trust their guts, uh, regardless of what the evidence might mm -hmm. be, to uh, believe, I mean, we might say wantonly, but we, we uh, you know, we, 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 uh, we, we trust that what we believe is best will happen, irrespective of anything else. And I think uh, you know, and, and it's 
easy to see this even in medicine, you know, when doctors are very, very committed to, you know, evidence-based practices, and we want them to be, we encourage them to be, but uh, what they sometimes lose sight of, and patients sometimes lose sight of this as well, is uh, what the outcome means for a patient. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to be able to bring about a certain kind of outcome, but if that's not the outcome that's going to benefit the patient because there are three or four other things going on with the patient that are much more significant and they don't know about those, uh, then just focusing on the evidence and a particular belief or a particular outcome isn't necessarily going to be the what we call quote unquote the best for that patient. And so what we hope that the chapter brings out is this idea of the need for taking evidence seriously while balancing against other things that matter to us and the value of a belief for us in light of uncertainty matters and hopefulness is a way of saying you know what evidence is really really important however there are other things that are important that i need to take into consideration when figuring out whether this is a good belief or a responsible belief i mean we would also say that um you know having hopeful beliefs can contribute to intellectual and even moral virtues we think um that when we believe the best in the world, in ourselves, and in each other, uh, then we're more likely to form the kind of character that we should form as well. So hopefulness is important in lots of respects, um, even to the most fundamental natures of our relationships. Great. Okay, thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, we sure appreciate it. All right, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Our final interview is with Professor Don Fallis. Don teaches philosophy at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. His philosophical work includes the scholarly articles, What is Lying and What is Disinformation? Welcome, Don. Hi, Don. Hi. Hi, Don. Good, good. Thanks for talking to us today. We appreciate it. Sure, no problem. All right, let's get started. So, Uh, It's fair to say that a lot of lying takes place in The Princess Bride. Can you remind the fans of some of the most noteworthy instances of deceit in the story? Sure. Well, the uh, the in some sense, the plot is is driven by deception because uh, Humperdinck is is trying to uh, get public support for his war against Gilder. And so his whole idea is to uh, kill the princess and then uh, blame the Gildarians for having done it. Um, and then there's the, uh, the probably the most famous bit is the, uh, is the Battle of Wits, where the Sicilian uh, is, uh, is battling to the death with uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts. And uh, both of them are actually engaged in deception there. Right. Uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts has, uh, has told... Uh, Vicini, the Sicilian, that uh, there's only poison in one of the goblets when there's actually poison in both of the goblets. And then in order to try and win win the battle, Vicini uh, pretends that there's some, something's happened in in order to distract the Dread Pilot Roberts. and but of course it doesn't matter because there's poison in both goblets, (laughs) so it doesn't matter that he manages to switch the goblets. And then uh, Another bit that I like is the uh, um, when they uh, when our heroes try and uh, uh, storm the castle, um, they uh, uh, put on the hurricane cloak, you know, light 
light uh, Fezzik on fire uh, and in order to frighten away the uh, the guards. Yeah, and, uh, yeah so th- so I mean, basically, my uh, my uh, research area is lying and deception, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's what I call adversarial epistemology. And so uh, uh, the uh, Princess Bride just is a really nice uh, venue for exploring uh, different kinds of deception and how you can detect, potentially detect deception. Great. Okay, so let's start uh, by in our discussion of deception by talking about the badness of lying. Um, in your chapter, you discuss some philosophical accounts of why lying might be morally wrong. Can you share some of those lessons with our listeners? Um, well, I, I'm actually not the best person to answer that question <laughs> because uh, the uh, although I'm inclined to think, agree with uh, most moral philosophers that uh, uh, deception and lying are are usually problematic things to be engaged in. And uh, I sort of allude to in my in my uh, chapter, the uh, argument that uh, um, uh, Immanuel Kant gives for why lying is wrong. Mm -hmm. But actually, I'm not a moral philosopher. Mm-hmm. I'm an epistemologist. I okay. study how people can acquire knowledge, and so the the part of the issue about lying that that uh, I'm interested in is, given that this is a threat to our ability to acquire knowledge, um, how can we uh, uh, avoid this threat? How can we not be deceived? And also, there may be all sorts of circumstances where it's actually morally appropriate. Mm-hmm. To engage in 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 deception, and um, and maybe the and the Princess Bride sort of gives a nice example of this because you know, the the Humperdinck is going to kill uh, Buttercup, and our heroes have to uh, get into the castle, and so they use trickery and deceit right. in order to achieve mm-hmm. this, and presumably that's a case where a deception is justified, but then. As a as an epistemologist, one of the things I'm concerned with is like, okay, well, if I do need to engage in deception, how do I do it? How do I make make mm-hmm. it so that somebody's more likely to acquire a false belief that I want them to have rather than uh, the true belief that would might be more beneficial for them to have? Great. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, then let's just jump into that. Um, so you talk about epistemic adversaries in your chapter. So what is an epistemic adversary and how much, how might we go about identifying such a person? Okay. Well, I mean, the, the, the basic idea is that, you know, unfortunately in life, you know, we have to worry about people who, who don't share our, our interests and that might be, uh, our adversaries and would, you know, you know, somebody else would prefer to get the contract or prefer to win the race, and uh, and we have to uh, you know, do our best to uh, um, succeed in this battle. Um, epistemic adversaries are those adversaries that try to gain an advantage over us, not by force or uh, you know or whatnot, but by making us think the world is one way rather than another so that we mistakenly make choices that um, they uh, that that are work to their advantage right um, so so for you know for example um, at the toward the end of the toward the end of the movie um, uh, there's the the scene where uh, 
Wesley's lying on the bed <laughs> yeah. and uh, and uh, doesn't have the strength to get up because he's <laughs> he's been mostly dead for quite a while. Right. Um, and so he but he um, fools Humperdinck into thinking that, you know, he could get up and, you know, kill him if he wanted to. So Humperdinck had better drop his sword. Yeah, so that's a so that's a case of of uh, of of Humperdinck um, getting Wes or Wesley getting Humperdinck to do what he wants, not by be using force, beating him in a sword fight, but mm -hmm. by making making him believe that he's going to die if he doesn't drop his sword. So giving him a false belief that that now works to uh, um, Wesley's advantage. So are there are there strategies that we could employ to try to determine whether someone is our epistemic adversary? How would, how do we come to know this? Right. So um, the um, uh, one of the things that I one of the things I try and do in in, in my chapter is uh, um, try and point out how even though most philosophers when they when they talk about threats to knowledge talk about things like uh, perceptual illusions or cognitive errors, um, there are at least a few um, notable instances in the history of philosophy where um, philosophers have looked at this problem of what, like I say, what I'm calling adversarial epistemology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, the sort of the, the most notable uh, instance is uh, Descartes and his meditations where he's like, well, you know, is there anything I can know for sure? Um, and uh, he, he's he's worried that there's not a lot he can know for sure because you know, it might be that there's this malicious demon that's that's making things appear uh, to us in a certain way when in fact things are totally different. You know, we might be essentially you know brains and vats, or mm -hmm. we might be in the matrix, or what what have you. And so Descartes deals with this. Uh, question of, of, of an this issue of an epistemic adversary uh, by trying to show that God must exist and he wouldn't deceive us and so on and so forth. But his argument, even if it's correct, and a lot of people have suggested that it's not correct, but even if it were correct, it would only rule out these, this sort of extreme possibility of an all-powerful malicious demon right. doesn't rule out sort of the sort of more mundane, you know, con men that we can all potentially run into. So you need a different philosophical approach to actually deal with that. And so the philosopher that I was sort of appealing to most heavily in my in my article was uh, David Hume, mm -hmm. and he actually gives some you know advice for how do you detect, you know, uh, more run-of-the-mill deception? Okay, so what is, what is that advice? Well, um, one, thing that he, one thing that David Hume suggests is that it's sort of like, it's a sort of like proto-version of the sort of standard thing you think about when people talk about lie detection that you know you look for signs of nervousness do they look away when they're talking to you are they sweating um if you've if you've managed to hook them up to a polygraph does their you know heart rate go up um but ex with the possible exception of an ego in the princess bride whom miracle max says is a rotten liar 
it seems like most of the deceivers are pretty, you know, smooth and, right. and, and pretty convincing. So you have to look for other techniques for engaging in, engaging in deception, uh, for detecting deception. And uh, actually, these other techniques are, tend to be more, more effective. Uh, one thing is you look to see is the is the claim that this that the person is making uh, at all plausible. You think about does this person have some sort of motivation to deceive me? Is there a potential bias here such that I shouldn't shouldn't think that this person is a is a completely reliable uh, source of information? And there's the and then finally. Um, there's the issue of is does this is this is this claim or is this evidence that I'm seeing is this consistent with everything else that I know about the world? And um, studies have been done to suggest that looking for inconsistency is actually the way most people who are able to detect deception are able to do it, rather than you know looking for these you know is he sweating is he is he looking away. Mm -hmm. And um, a nice thing about the Princess Bride is that the the uh, that when Buttercup finally figures out <laughs> that she shouldn't trust Humperdinck, um, it's by it's by uh, um, finding an inconsistency. Um, in particular, um, he has told her that uh, um, that uh, he's released. Wesley and uh, and uh, if but if she wants to if she wa if she wants to marry him uh, I think I'm getting this right he'll send his four fastest ships right. Right, in yeah. all four directions and and catch up to uh, Wesley and if he wants to return he will um, but then on the on the eve of their wedding day um, he happens to mention that um, his entire fleet is going to uh, um, accompany them, uh, uh, their ship on their on their honeymoon. Right. And she realizes, wait a second, it can't be your entire fleet if you sent the four fastest ships out to look for Wesley. And so at that point, she's. I mean. I, as I recall, she's not really keen on him, doesn't want to marry him, but that's the point at which she realizes he's a deceiver. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Took her long enough. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, great. Thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, we appreciate it. Sure. No problem. Hey, right. What are we liking this week? Well, we actually had an opportunity to check out a few things this week. Despite the fact that school started and all I that. I know. We're, we're constantly swamped, and yet we managed to watch TV and go to the movies. Um, we carved out some room. We have priorities. That's what it is. <laughs> so finally, the curiosity about the memes caused us to watch Bird Box. Yeah. yeah. Which I thought it was a lot of fun. It was really good. Yeah. I've, I've seen a lot of um, folks say it was great, and I've seen a bunch of people complaining, going, oh, it's not all that. Um, I felt like the intensity level of that, was high from start to finish. Yeah. Um, just, you know, um, not exactly scary. Don't think it was supposed to be scary. It's supposed to be kind of suspenseful. But pretty much the entire time, I was, like, 
into it, enjoying it, um, excited about what was coming next. Yeah, for the people who were giving it bad reviews, I'm not sure, really sure what they wanted out of it. I have a theory. Okay. Um, there's a, a certain segment of the population that feels cheated when there's not um, enough really horrible CGI. <laughs> and the fact that there was none in this, right? Yeah. So, you know, you hear all the comparisons to um, The Quiet Place. Um, and there, I thought that was great. The only thing that I wasn't crazy about um, was when they showed the, the creatures, right? The, mm-hmm. the CGI. CGI can just ruin anything. Yeah, for me too. And here they, they resisted the, the temptation. Okay, so um, what else are we liking? Bandersnatch. Bandersnatch was great. So this is a Black Mirror, I don't know, what are they calling it? Like a Black Mirror movie? Yeah, it's a Black Mirror movie. Yeah. Um, just I, choose your own adventure. Right. And I hope I hope this isn't all the Black Mirror we get this year, right? Instead of doing a, you know, a full season, they just did this movie. Um, but if, if that were the case, that would still be very good. Yeah. Right? A, a mm-hmm. good year for, for Black Mirror. Very good uh, from a philosophical perspective. I was... Saying as we were watching it today, it would have been nice if we would have seen Bandersnatch before we did our episode on the multiverse, because there's lots mm-hmm. of elements of that there. Lots of discussion of free will um, and alternative possibilities. Right. Some really cool um, sort of aesthetic stuff where um, they have mechanisms built into the story that make it the case that the viewer is part of the story beyond just sort of selecting where the adventure goes next. Mm-hmm. Right there's there's reference to these viewers and we, we don't want to say too much, um, but yeah it was it was great it was very satisfying. Um, I wondered when it was going to end, but not in the gosh when's this going to be over kind of way. Um, it ends lots of times though, right. so you can you can actually arrive at a variety of different endings. And and reading about it, you know, depending on what path you end up on, you know, you can be done in about forty five minutes. Or it could be more than a couple hours, which yep. I, I think we were we were pushing that. We messed with all the endings. <laughs> mm-hmm. so. And gladly would have watched um, quite a bit more. Um, okay, so we also um, took our son to see Mary Poppins Returns. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know what to say. I'm not a, a big Mary Poppins guy. I, I loved the original when I was five. <laughs> I liked it when I was eight. Um, later, I just didn't care about it. Um, but I was I was in the mood for some kind of nostalgia, and and what they did in this um, was at least a, they attempted to have it have a lot of the elements of the original. So that that promised to be fun, um, but it yeah. was kind of an unfulfilled promise. Um, so it it seemed like um, what they were doing this kind of reminded me of Bad Santa too, right? Where they they made Bad Santa too, and they thought. Okay, all the elements from Bad Santa have to be there. We're just gonna check them off in the, in the same way that you know there are certain things that are in you know all of the Back to the Future movies, right? Um, so yeah, so they had the the chimney sweeps, only their lamp lighters, but they do their big number and the dancing's kind of the same, and mm-hmm. then they do the the you know same style of cartoony animation when they go on some kind of fantasy thing like they did in the first one. Um, so they, they, they hit on every theme, which, you know, had the potential to, you know, at least have this kind of nostalgic feel. Um, but for me, it was all flat. I, I, none of the songs were memorable, but none of them were bad. Um, none of the performances were particularly great, but none of them were bad. Um, they, the kids looked like the same kids from the first one, even though they're the kids of those kids. 
Um, the most interesting part for me was um, the woman who played the grown-up um, little kid from the first one, Jane. Um, I, I recognized her, but I couldn't place her. Um, so I, was, I spent a lot of time thinking about who is that lady I know I've, I've seen her. Um, and then I had to go to the restroom, and so I looked at the IMDb while I was in there. <laughs> And um, then I found out that, that it was the main woman from the newsroom. And that was the high point of the movie. I, I felt great. It's like, oh, finally, yeah, now I know who this person is. Now you're giving it a much more bleak review than I would. I mean, I, I, I know you're kind of giving it a middling kind of review, not necessarily bad. But uh, I thought it was better than you did. I, I, so full disclosure, like I received an important email right as the movie started. And mm-hmm. so... I, I didn't know quite, because I, I didn't find myself immersed in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you spent half the movie thinking about other things, yeah. just like I did. Well, I was so I was thinking about, I was trying to be immersed in it, but I was thinking about this email. Um, but then there were some moments where I was, I was brought in, and I um, liked some of the performances more than you did. Like, I thought that Lin-Manuel Miranda, as always, was charming. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he he wasn't in it enough. Um, he wasn't. He's in maybe it. the most charming, right? Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I, I'm kind of thinking for some, it's it's more of a movie for younger people, and I think that there's a chance that some younger people wouldn't relate as much to the older Mary Poppins, um, just because of the way things look. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know, how kids are. Yeah, um, yeah. And so having this kind of updated, it almost seemed like a remake, only. Like you say, the the songs weren't as compelling, and so maybe like a, a reimagining for it. But it's not a reimagining because it's a sequel. But it's it's it kind of is a reimagining in the sense that everything for every song that occurs in the or the the previous one, there's a corresponding sort of song, like you said, for the so. Um, yeah. So back to the multiverse, a, right? If if they had made this for um, and said, well, let's just what would this the original be like in a slightly different possible world? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, anyway, for an sorry. audience for an audience that prefers things to look newer and, and to be relatable to them. Yeah, yeah. I thought Emily Blunt was um, spot on. She did a, a great Mary Poppins. It just there wasn't enough mm-hmm. sort of script to work with there. Um, yeah, and interestingly, you know, her part of the story is she was just kind of there, being Mary Poppins and bossing the kids around, and mm-hmm. didn't play the same kind of role in the narrative that the the. Um, you know, Julie Andrews did in the earlier one. Okay, and then um, finally, we've, we've talked about this plenty, but just Ozark season two, we're now, what, six or seven episodes in. Um, yep, it's good. Really strong. Yeah, loving it. It's time for listener musings. This week's listener musing comes from Bob. This is a good one. Yeah, I like this one. Bob says... When, when thinking about the multiverse, I like to consider it alongside the Copernican Revolution. Back then, people were wrestling with the idea that Earth wasn't the center of our planetary system. I think what made the proposition uncomfortable for many people was that it strikes at the idea that the universe was specifically created for humans to live in. Since then, we've had a series of discoveries that move humans even further from the center of the universe. We discovered Earth is far from the center of our galaxy, there are countless other galaxies, the universe is expanding, and that that expansion is accelerating. Even after all that, it seems to be difficult for humans to give up the idea that the world was made for us and we're the center of everything. Getting proof of multiple universes would 
be to move humanity even farther from the center, since we must imagine that the vast majority of the alternate universes would be even less hospitable to human life than our own. For every cool alternative universe with, say, an evil Spock, there would be countless others that would be completely lifeless and uninteresting due to some physical constant like gravity being outside human tolerances. It gets hard to wrap one's mind around the apparent insignificance of humanity. Even if it turns out that we can't prove the existence of multiple universes, the extent of just the one known universe should be enough to keep humanity gobsmacked for at least a few more generations, since we haven't even fully absorbed our Copernicus. Okay, yeah, boy, that's awesome, Bob. Um, Do you mind if I start? Oh, no, please. I've got a a number of thoughts. Um, So one, I I just want to say, Bob's absolutely right about this, right? It's, (laughs) It's depressing and bleak. And so as I was reading this, um, when it first came through, I was thinking about that, that great bit in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life where the you know, guy filled out the organ donor card. And so then the people came to collect his organs even though he wasn't dead and he's not so sure. So then they sing the universe song where they you know, tell you just how insignificant you are. And then, <laughs> oh, fine, take my liver, right? It's, um, it, it's like that. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing, you know, most possible worlds are not worlds such that um, humans would thrive in. So it did, you know, clearly we're not the center of things. Unless um, the story we told last time, um, you know, about maybe David Lewis's account of the universe is true. In which case, we can maybe go in the other direction. Sure, right, the numbers aren't going to work out that we're in, you know, most of the, the universes, most of the possible worlds. Um, they contain, you know, versions of each of us. But um, if Lewis is right about the number of counterparts that exist, then I, I can maybe sort of rationalize my way to being more significant because not only am I here in this universe, but there's practically an infinite number of other universes where there's a whole bunch more me's doing all these things. I, I do more stuff if, if by me, I mean me and my counterparts, than I ever dreamt of in the 60 or 80 or 100 years. Before you get too excited about that, the slug on the bike path has just as many counterparts. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's not. That's (laughs) what I'm saying. It's not that the numbers outweigh things. It's just like, damn, there's a lot of me. (laughs) There's a lot of me to go around. I just go around different (laughs) universes. I don't know. You know, if if there are equally many... um, things that we would typically call insignificant that, that... in other possible universes, then the fact that there's a lot of you doesn't seem to carry a lot of weight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bob, yeah. Bob's right about that. You know, yeah. Most of the universes aren't going to have. But still, um, two of me is better than one, even if the percentage of me that exists in all the universes is infinitesimally small, whereas if there's only one universe, I at least currently exist in 100% of them. <laughs> um, you know, better, better to be two out of a billion than... Than one out of one, because two is better than one. <laughs> okay. Impossible world speak. I'm I'm just throwing stuff at the microphone to see what sticks. <laughs> I couldn't agree with Bob more. I also think this is an interesting combination of our episode on the absurdity of the human condition and our episode on um, the multiverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's it, it. This is just that same uh, insignificance recognition that Camus makes, only applied to the multiverse, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bob. Okay. Well, that's a wrap. Episode 14 is in the can. Once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. (laughs) 
And um, what do we have on, on tap for next week? Well, if everything goes as planned, we'll see, but if everything go- goes as planned, we're going to be discussing arguments for and against the existence of God as they come up in the future. Great. So we'll see um, you then. Looking forward to that. Thanks for listening. Bye.